Remember Facebook, when it was an app on our phones, and we stared at our screens, scrolling down something that was called the timeline? When to communicate with our friends and family, we had to type and send texts via Messenger and WhatsApp? Mark Zuckerberg wants us to believe there will come a time when all that will be ancient internet history. Soon enough, we'll be connecting to each other in the metaverse, a virtual reality in which our avatars will be able to meet in virtual space, have virtual meetings and share virtual experiences. It will seem to us as though we're really there, present in virtual space, and that our experiences are real, even though they won't be. But shall we believe the hype? And even if virtual reality ends up being as exciting as Zuckerberg wants us to think, should we really trust him and his company to create a whole new internet for us? If Facebook's products have proven to be masterful distraction machines designed to keep us online and mine our private data, will the metaverse end up being a version of that on steroids? What is the value and significance of virtual experiences compared to real ones? And what will be the moral status of virtual acts, like murdering someone's avatar in the metaverse? Welcome to The Philosopher and the News. I'm Alexis Papazoglu. This week, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Rami Ali. He is an assistant professor of philosophy at the Lebanese American University in Beirut and holds a PhD from the University of Miami in Florida. He works on the phenomenological tradition as well as the philosophy of technology, but he is also an avid proponent of virtual reality technology. He owns four headsets and has a working knowledge of designing virtual spaces. So Rami is one of the best-placed philosophers to talk about virtual reality, as someone who understands the technology, is enthusiastic about it, but also aware of its potential pitfalls. Rami Ali, welcome to The Philosopher in the News. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. So Rami, as someone who's quite involved in this world of virtual reality, what went through your head when you heard Facebook's announcement of its plans to launch what they call the metaverse, I guess a kind of version of virtual reality? I guess three reactions that I had just upon hearing the news. So I was excited, I was also relieved, and I was anxious. (laughs) So I was excited because I'm following up on a lot of this stuff from a a day-to-day basis. And so... um, in a way, the conference didn't really tell us anything new, but it was like an overt declaration of their intentions and of where we're going. So it kind of set an explicit roadmap. And so I'm excited because on the one hand, I'm invested in the stuff that's happening right now, but I'm also excited because of the stuff that will uh, happen in the future. I'm relieved because I think that, honestly, it's great that it's being presented to the public. 
I think uh, Facebook uh, meta has good reach. And so lots of people are going to pay attention to it. But it's important that the public know that this stuff is going on because it, it's been going on. And those of us who are in this niche space know that this stuff is happening. And it just mm -hmm. matters that people know at large because otherwise they're going to walk into the metaverse in some sense uh, unwittingly. And then I'm anxious because although I really, really believe that the metaverse is going to give us so many conveniences and in some ways life before the metaverse will be near unimaginable after the metaverse because so many things were much less convenient than they are and it just looks very rudimentary by comparison. Uh, still, uh, at the same time, all of these conveniences are going to come at a cost and we're really walking into a... Uh, you know, although the virtual world might not be like another planet, maybe it might be like another planet. But even if you don't think of it as just another new place, it is a new place in other ways. It's going to require that we start evaluating our virtual actions at a much more serious level to think about our relationship to virtual items, what's permissible and impermissible in the virtual. And, you know, although we've had some practice with this, given the internet, we've also run into lots of problems with the internet by itself. So since the metaverse is a much more elaborate internet, there's going to be many more things that are going to be worth worrying about yeah and in, and, and in some ways you, you've mentioned that you know you're already in the space as aware and you, you're kind of steeped into this uh, this world of virtual reality and my question is in what ways is zuckerberg's version of the metaverse anything particularly new for them it's something that is not completed yet it's not a fully completed technology but from my understanding, there are other virtual reality platforms out there. So what's what's the difference between what Zuckerberg is doing uh, compared to what's around already? Maybe I'll, before I answer that question, I'll answer, I guess, so the, the, the question I want to start with is what's the relationship between virtual reality and the metaverse? Because virtual reality technology is going to be one of our primary ways of entering the metaverse but it's not identical uh, to the metaverse. Mm -hmm. And Zuckerberg says lots of things in that presentation about what the metaverse is. And I think they're basically right, the things that he's describing. But maybe I'll just say three things about what the metaverse is supposed to be. So first of all, it's supposed to be an evolution of the internet. That's one way you can think about it. The internet starts out, you know, text-based, uh, then becomes more image-based, and now it's going to become something else. And uh, mainly this evolution is being carried forward by increased uh, computational power and also new computer hardware. So that's one thing. It's an evolution of the internet. Another thing is that it's supposed to be an ideal digital world. And it's ideal because it's an ideal because we're, we're not there yet. And in fact, we're far away from it being fully actualized, although there are many parts that already exist in more or less rudimentary forms. So we kind of have like a proto-metaverse right now, but it's supposed to be something more than that. And I guess like a third way of thinking about it, and maybe this is like the most polished way I managed to come up with, right, is that the metaverse is supposed to be an interconnected, immersive and persistent virtual world that seamlessly integrates with the non-virtual world. So let me try to just break this down. It's interconnected because it's uh, through the internet and so it connects all of us. Mm. 
it's persistent because ultimately it either is or depends on data structures. And these data structures don't depend on any of us being in the metaverse. An archaeologist many, many years from now, you know, might unearth the metaverse in the sense that they unearth all of the data uh, that made up the metaverse or that was the metaverse. It's virtual because it occurs on a computer-based medium. So there's more loaded uh, concepts of the virtual, but I'm just going to say that the virtual is occurring on a computer. It's a world because it's not constrained to some group of people or some objects or some domain of activity. It's a bit like the internet. You can do anything on the internet. You can do anything in the metaverse. And it integrates with the non-virtual world because it's meant to allow us to seamlessly transition between being in the virtual world and being outside the virtual world. And the seamlessness of this transition is important because it's not the case that all computer technologies uh, are ones where you can seamlessly transition into them from your normal world. In the old days, it used to be that if you want to access the internet or a computer, you have to turn on your desktop computer. And then there's that wait before you're online. Dial up. Yeah. And then you have to dial it up and so on. Now it's there's the the transition more seamless because, you know, it's very easy to look at your phone. But what if you didn't have to do any extra Mm -hmm. gestures? You could just be as you are. And now it's there. So that seamlessness is also supposed to be part of this idea of the metaverse. That's yeah, that's a lot to sort of try and imagine all at once. Maybe maybe it would be useful to tell us a little bit about what virtual reality looks and feels like today rather than trying to imagine what this metaverse is going to be. It sounds like a very ambitious project and kind of transforming the whole experience of being on the internet. But what is it like today? Is it more than just a very realistic video game? Because I think a lot of people think of virtual reality, VR, in those terms. Uh, Tell us a little bit, as someone who, who uses this kind of technology, what is it like Okay, yeah. I guess the first thing maybe to say is that people do associate virtual reality with video games. And in some way, this association is not wrong because uh, our first virtual reality applications were basically gaming applications. And that's what we've Mm. kind of largely used this sort of stuff for. But in fact, virtual reality is more like a medium in which you do things rather than a game of some sort. Mm. Within the virtual, so on computers, uh, you can do calculations or do some statistics or play some video games. And these are all options that you have. Virtual reality allows you just as many options. So it's not constrained to gaming applications, but you can do a lot of other interesting stuff in virtual reality. Uh, Probably if this conversation was happening a couple of years from now, we would be doing it uh, in the metaverse uh, or, you know, through these virtual reality devices and conferences can take place in virtual reality and so on. So to describe this, uh, what virtual reality experience is like. And so my number one advice is, you know, to try it out. But a simple way of describing it is to think of it as walking into the world of a picture or walking into, you know, something that's happening on TV. It feels like it's there all around you. You seem steeped in the world of that image. And maybe a good uh, image to have in mind is to think about the old uh, movie Mary Poppins, 
uh, had the scene where Mary is walking with the kids and they run into Bert and he's selling some paintings that he's done. And then she uses her magic so that they can jump into the painting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember the scene. Yeah. So, you know, but in a way, that's really what virtual reality is like. If you compare the experience you have while watching a TV show or playing a video game on a normal display of what I call a flat display, there you you see, you experience yourself as being somewhere and looking at an image. And this image uh, gives you a not, not face-to-face encounter with the object that you're seeing. You see it mediated through the screen. By contrast, in virtual reality, it feels like you're there in person or as if you're confronted with these objects face to face. Although you still are looking at a screen, but it doesn't feel like that. So the screen is all around you because in fact, you're wearing a headset and the the screens are glued to your eyes. So they're going wherever you're going. Mm. If you want to describe it maybe more technically, you can start by thinking about your experience right now, everything that you're experiencing. Well, you have an experience of being present where you are. So we can call this the sense of presence. And you can describe your sense of being present where you are as veridical because you really are present where you are. VR technology is technology to elicit this sense of presence. And it's going to elicit it in a non-veridical way because it's not a teleportation device. It doesn't take you anywhere. You stay exactly where you are, but you don't have the experience of being where you are. You have the experience of being elsewhere. In that sense, you can connect it to telepresence. Uh, you know, uh, with a telephone, you hear this, the voice where it is not, and television, you have the visual stimulus where it's not. Here, um, with telepresence in general, you uh, feel like you're present where you're not, but you're present somewhere in the real world. In with virtual reality, it's like you have this telepresence, but where are you present? You're present in the virtual world. So the, the headset was was something I had a question about. In some way, you, you talked about when you talked about the metaverse, we talked about sort of this kind of seamless transition, or the ambition of a seamless transition from kind of the real world to the to the virtual world to the metaverse. But at the moment, the way we do that is through this quite cumbersome, often quite heavy headset that you have to put on your on your head and and cover your your eyes with uh, sometimes your your ears as well cuz i guess th- the sounds from the virtual world are also um being being fed into your senses so does that element sort of uh make the transition less seamless does it does it is it something that kind of breaks the illusion as it were or is it something that you totally forget after you know a couple of minutes that you're even wearing it it is something that interferes with your feeling of being present in that virtual space. And I mean, you know, it depends on how comfortable the headset is. Some headsets are really Hmm. comfortable. And so you can, none of them are so comfortable that you can forget about them easily, but some of them, the experience can be good enough for you to just forget about, you know, whatever your neck pain as you carry this heavy object on your face. But it's also, you know, kind of worth pointing out that, you know, I said that virtual reality technology is technology for eliciting the sense of presence, but, you know, the sense of presence can now be broken down into all of its subcomponents, you know, so you can feel like you're, 
you can experience yourself as being visually present in a place, even if you're not auditorily present in that place. And so right now, these virtual reality devices are able to put you visually and auditorily in the virtual space. And to a certain extent, your body is there, but it's really your head and your hands that are in there. In a way, Hmm. it's like you kind of stuck your head into the world of the TV, but you're not quite fully there. Right. As time goes by, we'll we'll probably get more tactile feedback. Hmm. We already have projects of olfactory feedback and gustatory feedback. So the ideal is that you'll be immersed sensorially fully, but we're not there yet. So I'd be able to virtually drink a really expensive bottle of wine in, in the virtual world that I might not be able to afford, say, in, in the real world. Uh, yeah. And the VR will, will feed me the olfactory and uh, taste notes of, of that wine virtually. Yeah. yeah, but you'll get the taste without being filled up because you're not going to drink anything ultimately, but we might be able to stimulate your tongue so that you have this very yeah. vivid experience of... Huh. Of, of having that wine in your mouth. So to, to bring it back for a minute, before we go into sort of some of the philosophical questions that arise out of the nature of virtual reality, let's stick for a moment to this Facebook aspect, as it were. So you said that some part of you was anxious when you when you heard of the announcement that has to some extent do with you know the company that's launching this so the question is what are the specific worries when it comes to facebook specific kind of incarnation of, of virtual reality this kind of metaverse that they're talking about so we know for example that you know Facebook is this kind of master of distraction. It's made us sort of addicted to its platform. And, you know, we find ourselves on it even even maybe when we don't really want to be on it and kind of mindlessly scrolling through. So what are these worries you think going to be sort of amplified when it comes to the metaverse? Is it going to be an even more addictive, even more distracting kind of a technological invention? Yeah, okay. So I guess, you know, there's these two facets with Meta or Facebook. One about, you know, kind of the social distraction that it's generated, but also these other issues about privacy. So I'm just stick to the first one for now. One thing I'm going to say uh, for all of this is that basically the metaverse isn't going to solve our social problems or fix our bad or unhealthy habits. Will it make them worse, though, is the question. (laughs) Yeah, so I I suspect so. I suspect that it will make them worse because if Facebook offered us distraction before, it's going to be able to offer us much more distraction now because it used to be that the distraction was at least located on your phone or on your computer, but now the distraction is all over the place. Since it feels like it's right there around you, it's going to be kind of a permanent source of distraction. And maybe here it's worth just kind of pointing out that, you know, there's virtual reality and augmented reality. So the idea behind these virtual reality devices is that you get the sense of being present in a virtual space. By contrast with augmented reality devices, you have the sense of being present in the real world and you really are present in the real world, but we're adding virtual objects to the real world. So you end up with this hybrid virtual real world. And so probably our day-to-day applications are going to depend on augmented reality rather than virtual reality. Virtual reality is more helpful for specialized applications where you don't really want to 
see the real world. You just want to see whatever it is that you're engaged with. Uh, by contrast, I suspect that in time, our phones will turn into glasses and then you'll get your messages popping up in you know, your visual field. And that's why, why I say that it's going to be even more distracting because now you'll be able to like walk down the street and be scrolling through something, you know, without having to look at your screen. Yeah. I was going to ask about this privacy question that you, you raised. So uh, at the moment, obviously, Facebook is, you know, it's, it's entire business model, as it were, is it's kind of premised on intruding on our privacy. And from my understanding is that VR in some ways is a, is a, in its current form and some versions like Second Life, which I, I don't know if it necessarily counts as, as these, these things we're talking about, but it's a kind of version, at least, of, of virtual reality. You know, people like to be someone totally different from who they are in real life and create these avatars and have this kind of almost separate existence to to their life in the in the real and the physical world. But if privacy is going to be a big issue in this in this new world, is all the are all those benefits or all those kind of interesting aspects of virtual reality? The idea that you can be someone else and be in a different space and, and do different things and somehow leave your everyday self behind is that just not going to be possible because what facebook would really want to do is link our virtual selves to our real selves and then you know try and make us do things in the real world buy things or whatever how do you see these kind of privacy concerns transforming as a result of uh, the metaverse so I think these are like some of the biggest difficulties because also, you know, the more I think about this, the more I see it as, in some sense, we're we're trapped because the same thing that we want and that is that's going to be the best case scenario for the metaverse is the thing that is going to put us in a position that's most susceptible uh, to these sorts of privacy concerns and so on. I guess before I, I say that, you know, I mean, you know, we also don't want to exaggerate to what extent it, it's not like something exclusive to the metaverse. People also segment their lives in various ways. You know, you, you have like your party buddies and your academic buddies and, uh, you know, and on some days you dress in one way and in some way, days you dress some other way and you don't necessarily have to connect all the parts of your life together. I think of what people do on the internet when they use Instagram or whatever. They're trying to express themselves individually. Right. So we have personas already, as it were, that we present to the world somehow. Different personas on, on, online and different personas in our professional life and our social life. So, yeah. so do you see this as a kind of part of a continuum of different, different characters? It is, but it's going to be exaggerated because now your personas are going to be much more robust than the current personas. Mm. You know, a profile picture expresses your identity to a certain extent. I think, I think Zuckerberg used the term is that your avatar is a living 3D representation of you or something like that. And in, in, in some sense, that's, he's right. Let me, let me back up and then come back to this point. I think with respect to privacy, in a way, there's two major worries that are introduced by these extended reality technologies. 
So one worry is about the intrusion on our privacy and surveillance. Uh, and another is the cost of this intrusion when it happens. So let me start with the cost of the intrusion. Uh, the problem is that because VR uh, technology aims to be immersive, it and that means that it's going to give you the sense of really being present wherever you, you know, in that virtual world. It also means that the experiences that you have in it are more psychologically impactful. So one problem is that because this technology elicits the sense of presence, it can have very deep, uh, a very strong psychological impact on us. So I'll just say, you know, I really love horror games and I've always like loved horror video games and I like them, you know, better than movies because I feel like I'm in more in danger. But now when I try out horror virtual reality experiences, some of them, I just think I, I can't really do them. It's just too scarring and like, it makes me too anxious and over time, like I'm shaking, you know, or my heart's beating too fast. And so there is this psycholo- this issue of psychological impact. Um, and so I really don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you can traumatize somebody with a well-curated virtual reality experience. So now think about somebody hacking your computer and causing a pop-up to show up on your screen. That can be really annoying. But now imagine if you're in this immersive space and you get hacked and the hacker decides to throw realistic-looking snakes into your world every now and then when they know that you have a fear of snakes. Imagine how much you can do to a person. You know, there's these, also these famous cases that have happened in Second Life where you have like a rape or a molestation or any, you know, any of these mm-hmm. experiences where somebody is being aggressed. And even though at least some people think this is not as serious as the real thing, you can make it more serious by making it more realistic in that sense. Yeah, and we'll come to that, I guess, later you know, when we discuss this uh, this very special case, what's called the gamer's dilemma about this very question. Yeah. So, so this has got to do with privacy because, yeah, if someone intrudes in your computer now it's annoying or it might cost you, you know, some files or some money or whatever. But if someone sort of intrudes into your virtual world, they can actually harm you psychologically in a way that that's that's less possible now yeah so that's that's on the experiential level so the the cost of our privacy being invaded in vr is and i don't here mean it as specifically a company even hackers or anything like that you know think about augmented reality where you have your home space which is your normal home overlaid with these virtual objects and now somebody puts something creepy in there now this right. can you know traumatize you in your own house but then there's a separate issue about surveillance you know and about uh, mm-hmm. this the meta being able uh, to watch our actions i'm going to try to say why i think the thing that we want from the metaverse is also the thing that is going to endanger us the most in the metaverse so start by thinking about these virtual worlds being mediated by computer technology so in other words there's no accessing the virtual world without using some piece of computer technology mm-hmm. um, And now anything that's going to enter the virtual world, it's going to enter it by moving some information from the real world into the computer. So if I want to move some files on my desktop, the movement of my hand has to be tracked by the mouse in order, and it has to collect data points about the movements of my hand for it to be able to move the mouse for me. 
now this technology aims to be, uh, you know, more immersive, more convenient. And the more immersive and more convenient it is, the more potential violations there are. Because we're accessing the virtual through this hardware, if I want to bring in my whole body into the virtual world, then I need to be able, earlier I said, today's virtual reality devices are like putting your head in and putting your hands in, but the rest of your body, you know, if you wiggle your toes, that's not going to show up in the virtual world. But imagine you wanted that to show up. But if we're going to do that, this means that we have to collect data points. So we need sensors. That's one of the things that the metaverse will need more and more of. It needs more and more sensors in order to seamlessly integrate both worlds and to get that sense of presence going. But the more sensors you have, the more data collection points you have. As of last year, we needed to be in there for five minutes before they could trace who you are uh, based on sort of a a movement Hmm. signature. It's your behavior. uh, You behave in a particular way. You're a particular height and so on. So just watching you for five minutes with all these data points will pinpoint who you are. And we can imagine that the more data points there are, the more uh, this is going to happen. But... Even worse than that, because this technology aims to give you the sense of presence, earlier you were pointing out that if I'm wearing a very heavy headset, that's going to interfere with my sense of presence. Mm -hmm. So basically what this technology is trying to do is it's trying to become, you know, ready to hand in like the Heideggerian sense. It just has to be very accessible. And one of the things that Heidegger says about, you know, this practical engagement with the world is that when we practically engage with things, they don't become the object of our focus. If I'm hammering, the object of my focus is not the hammer, but the nail that I'm hammering. And so Zuckerberg, I I, I love this quote because it seems very nice, but it's creepy. He says, your devices won't be the focal point of your attention anymore. And so that's Mm -hmm. exactly it. So now the thing that's collecting data disappears from view. And so the better the technology is, the more sensors there are, which means more data collection points. And at the same time, these are being hidden away from you as a user in order to make the experience more immersive. So more immersive, more accessible, more fun means more data collection is uh, is possible. Gosh, yeah, quite terrifying that. <laughs> yeah, so then so, you're yeah. always going to have this illusion of being alone in that world, but that's always going to be an illusion now because any to the extent that you're in that world, that means this information is collectible at least. Yeah, this reminds me of Yuval Noah Harari says about AI and, and, and these kind of technologies. And I often find them kind of slightly exaggerated claims. But one of the things he says again and again is that these machines will know us better than we know ourselves. And it sounds like that's kind of where you're getting at that, you know, they'll be able to collect data points about our reactions to things that even we are un- unaware of. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, now just couple uh, these extended reality technologies, which are making things more immersive with AI, which is also able to collect data and process it. And you have, you know, it's uh, in a way our world sometimes strike, uh, seems to me like a, a very poorly directed sci-fi movie because everything's happening at the same time. There's an environmental disaster simultaneously. There's, you know, virtual reality simultaneously. There's AI, sometimes there's robots and 
you know, uh, we we're kind of we're we're developing these technologies faster than we're thinking about them. So that's really why I say, you know, virtual reality won't solve our problems. And I problem is that our current social and political structures optimize for profitability. And you know, as long as you're pro- optimizing for profitability, uh, you know, that's that means you're optimizing for profitability over morality, over kindness, over justice, over respect, over environmental awareness. Could Meta collect all this data and benefit us? Sure, because, you know, it wouldn't that be nice if you could get all of the nitty gritty details about how your body is functioning. But the problem is that we don't have social structures that are optimizing for that. They're optimizing for how can we exploit you in order to maximize the profit of the company or something like that. So I I think these are social political problems, not really um, problems native to the technology. As always, this podcast is created in partnership with The Philosopher, the UK's longest-running public philosophy journal. The autumn issue of The Philosopher is out, featuring articles on the topic of thinking otherwise, as well as a multitude of other interesting essays on academic freedom and its abuses, Nietzsche's nostrils, and the legacy of Charles Mills. To order your copy and subscribe to The Philosopher, go to www.com thephilosopher1923.org. I mean, so far, I guess we've, we've talked a lot about the negatives that can potentially come from VR. And the thing that I thought about when, when I first heard of Zuckerberg's announcement and when I usually think about virtual reality, and this probably because of my training as a philosopher, I think of, you know, Robert Nozick's kind of thought experiment which he calls the experience machine, which is a kind of warning that virtual experiences might seem alluring and and interesting, but, you know, really we should be cautious about them because they're not as valuable as we might think. So so Nozick invites us to imagine the scenario in which we have the option of having our brains wired in such a way that we experience a completely virtual reality. So totally seamless, you know, entirely detached from our physical bodies, entirely detached from the, the life we've been living so far. And in this virtual world, we can do anything we want, right? We can be anyone we want. We can live as if we're rich and famous, as though we're hugely accomplished writers, profound philosophers, whatever our hearts really desire. And Nozick argues that even though this might seem as a kind of attractive scenario. You know, why wouldn't you want to live as a rich person or as a famous person or as a profound philosopher? Most people wouldn't take that option if it was given to them. And the reasoning seems to be that we don't really value virtual experiences as much as we value real experiences. So, I mean, a number of questions come up from this, right, uh, this comparison. And But maybe let's start with the, the kind of simple uh, question, which is, you know, this is obviously an exaggerated version of virtual reality platforms as they exist today and maybe as they will exist in uh, in the future in the metaverse kind of version. But is Nozick getting at something here? Is, is there a similarity between the experience machine and, and these virtual worlds? And if so, should we be wary of them? So 
In some ways, Nodezix machine is like uh, virtual reality devices. In other ways, it's not so much like virtual reality devices. So it obviously elicits a better sense of presence. And the way Nodezix uh, envisions it is that your life there is more insulated from the real world than, and more complete in some ways than what virtual reality enables today. You know, we, we can't eat in virtual reality. We still depend on... Uh, you know, being able to stand on the earth to eat and to breathe and so on. So it's we don't have that sort of insulation and we don't have that uh, heavy sense of presence. So also, you know, he doesn't think about, you know, differently abled people. So one thing that virtual reality helps with is it helps people who can't have certain experiences because of their abilities have these experiences. And, you know, for all of us, it's going to give us abilities we don't have. But that's another thing, you know, I would, I would want more consideration of these sorts of facets. Nodex machine, I mean, I think the big problem with it is that it's underspecified in important ways. And once you specify those further, you can see that there's many possible versions of the experience machine, and some of them are not as valuable. Some maybe are more valuable or at least as valuable. So John Cogburn and Mark Silcox have this argument against focusing on the virtual aspect of the experience machine. So Nodzik says, you can't be anyway in the experience machine. You can't do things in the experience machine and you're not really in touch with reality. But they point out that each of these is controversial. Nodzik says you can't do anything in there because they're all virtual actions of some sort. The point they make is that he seems to envision this virtual reality where you're like a passive observer in it. And of course, in a movie, when you're watching it, you, you, you're not doing anything. You're just sitting back and maybe, maybe you're looking, but you can't do anything in the world of the movie. But in a video game, that's not the case. So if you think about interactive virtual reality in the way that we have interactive video games, you know, in interactive art the person who engages with the art actually does something. And in a video game, you also do something. You beat the level at such and such speed. So it seems like a virtual reality that was like that would allow you to do things. So Nozick, Nozick is, is, is assuming virtual reality is a little bit like watching TV. It's, it's a, for him, it's just a passive kind of feeding of, of information. A little bit. It's more like being a brain in a vat in that way, I guess. Whereas what you're saying is that, well, actually, virtual reality allows us to do things. So Nozick in some ways gets that wrong. But he still seems to want to emphasize a difference between sort of real life experiences and virtual experiences, or even if we want to allow for actions to exist in virtual worlds, virtual actions and, and real life actions. So, so he thinks that, you know, for example, the experience of actually writing a masterpiece or raising a family, say, are a lot more valuable than the kind of virtual experience of doing so or, you know, doing so in a, in a video game. And I take it you disagree with Nozick on this, right? You disagree about the fact that or the claim that virtual experiences or virtual acts are by definition, as it were, less valuable than real experiences and real acts. So can you tell us why that is and when why do you disagree with Nozick on this on this point? I guess there's multiple reasons for someone to disagree with Nozick. 
you know, one reason, so there's the virtual realism, irrealism debate. Virtual realism is the view that virtual items, which includes objects, properties, events, uh, experiences, and so on, that virtual items are real and they're items that exist in much the same way the chairs and rocks do. So if you think that, then you think that virtual experiences are not in any sense less real than the real world. And so you could think that their value is just like value in the real world. Uh, by contrast, virtual irrealism maintains that virtual objects don't really exist. Maybe they're fictions, hallucinations, or something like that. And so that's sometimes associated with the idea that virtual experiences are thereby less real, although not everybody uh, thinks this. So that, that's one issue. But I guess my objection to it is, is, uh, is a little different. Uh, I just don't think that all virtual experiences, and in general, that all virtual items are on par comes to their value uh, just because they're virtual. And uh, this is because different instances of a virtual item, so take a virtual experience, so different instances of a virtual murder can differ in substantial ways, and uh, these can affect the way that we value them. So let me, let me start with not a virtual experience, but a virtual object. Imagine that you look around the internet and you pick up a sample of virtual calculators. You look for some virtual calculators from some video games, some from some digital piece of software, and so on. Well, the question is, are these virtual calculators as good or as valuable as a calculator? And what you're going to find out is that your answer is going to be some of them are. Some of the virtual calculators perform all of the functions of a calculator. And so you don't care. Give me a virtual calculator. Give me a real calculator. I'll take either of them. They both do the same thing. By contrast, some virtual calculators are more like a facade of a calculator. They look like a calculator. And maybe in the game, you can use them to do certain things which are calculating. But there's no real calculations happening. And you couldn't figure out the sums of anything using that calculator. Basically, what we want or what I'm pointing out is that sometimes a virtual X is an X and sometimes it's not. Some virtual calculators are calculators, other virtual calculators are not. And so similarly, we're going to get something like some virtual experiences are real experiences, others are not going to be on par. I was going to say that, I mean, in some ways, the example of the calculator is very good because it, it makes the distinction between different versions of the virtual very crisp. But as Zuckerberg seems to be implying, and the main reasons why we use the internet are to do with social interactions, right? Social relationships between people. And when it comes to this, when it comes to kind of virtual relationships, the, the, a common example that comes up is, is that of friendship, right? The difference between a virtual friendship and a real friendship. And can virtual friendships really be the same as real friendships and, and you know, in the physical world and our Facebook friendships, say, real friendships and, and you know, that, that kind of debate. So does it get a lot more complicated <laughs> to make the distinctions between whether a virtual human interaction or relationship is as valuable as the real deal that it's a human relationship with a lot more moving parts and a lot more complicated than than a calculator so is nozick right in that case is it is he right that when it comes to the things that really matter to us the things that really give life meaning human relationships achieving certain things when it comes to those things is he right that it's the real thing that counts in the virtual 
isn't really as valuable. Yeah. So, you know, with a virtual calculator, we talked about a virtual object, but of course, we can also talk about virtual experiences and then in friendship, these virtual relations. Mm. But I think this distinction between reproducing properties and representing properties when it comes to virtual items in general, which includes virtual experiences and so on, it's going to also apply in the case of virtual friendships. Because the question is, am I being able to virtually reproduce features of friendship? And this means I just reproduce them in the virtual? Or am I simply representing them? So I keep thinking about, take Facebook friendships, and early on, you could like somebody's post. Well, when you like what somebody posted, are you representing liking? Or is this a reproduction of liking? And I mean, you might wonder about this because sometimes my answer isn't, I like it. My answer is more fine-grained than that. But I only have five or six emotions that I can express via the Facebook platform. And so then when I relate to you via Facebook, my relationship is not as rich. And what I'm expressing to you is not as rich as, I, as what I would be able to express to you in person. One, one thing that virtual reality and the metaverse aims to do is to try and make this much more the case, you know? So why do we want eye trackers? Because we want to be able to make eye contact in virtual reality. And if you think that eye contact is an important part of friendships, that was something that we could only represent before. So I could represent it maybe by pressing L to look at the other person, uh, but now I can reproduce it because I simply, all I need to do is look. And so I think that there's not going to be a general answer. Are virtual friendships as good as real friendships? Some are going to be better. If you're able to reproduce all of the features of friendship and maybe include other things that we're not able to do. And so then you'll have a virtual friendship that's even better than the regular friendship, because in the regular friendship, you might not be able to do these additional things. It's really going to depend on how much we elaborate the virtual. And, and this is really important, because I think one of the things that, you know, there's all of this research coming out now uh, that says uh, people feel more alienated than ever, which might make you wonder, how do we feel more alienated than ever if we're carrying a cell phone all the time. It's like we're so much more around others. But even though I text on WhatsApp with my friends all day long, it's not as rich an interaction as the interaction I used to have when I would just go over once a week and interact with them. So it can still leave me uh, craving uh, something. And it's not even, I mean, the like is an interesting example on Facebook, because it's not even something, it's not representing something we do in real life. I mean, we don't go around saying, oh, that's great. You know, when people tell us something that they've done, or, you know, what they ate that day, <laughs> where they went, or show us a picture from their travels, you know, it's a, it's a whole new kind of framework of interacting with other people that doesn't actually exist in in real life so you might think well even the even the term friendship might be an exaggeration here right it's not really it's a it's a different relationship altogether it's not really friendship it's you know a virtual different kind of interaction you know we accept i accept now you know facebook friendship requests from people i've I've never met in, in life and then exchange of human message. You know, it's hard to, again, imagine like what is that 
replicating exactly in in real life you don't you don't walk up to someone and say do you, a stranger and say do you want to be friends <laughs> you know it just doesn't happen so is the question i guess where I'm, what i'm getting at is like is this is it even appropriate or is it misguiding to say that you know the virtual is kind of reproducing yeah things that exist in the real world or are these not really reproductions they're just new versions of something different there are new things yeah Yeah. so i when i started talking about this representation and reproduction i was very i'm focusing on these things that are in the real world and now we're trying to create virtual counterparts of them but of course the virtual isn't just going to represent or reproduce the real world it's also going to innovate and so uh, sometimes you create an object that there's all sorts of hybrids you can build. You can represent some properties of some objects and reproduce some other properties. Or you might represent and reproduce and innovate. Or you might reproduce some properties of this one and some properties of that object. And so now you have a hybrid bottle calculator. But you can also just kind of make up something. You can stipulate these are properties, nothing has these properties, or nothing has all of these properties. And now I've kind of created a sui generis type of action. It's something that only exists virtually. Uh, People don't do it otherwise. And so maybe liking is like that. So I, I think it's really important that we just have these four or five options. And also you don't have the option of ever going negative. So you can't dislike anything. And, you know, you're kind of removing social cues for people. But yeah, I do agree that it's not like we're going to always end up reproducing or representing the real world. In fact, if that's all we were going to do, then uh, you know we might as well just stay in the real world since we're not adding anything new. But part of being in the metaverse is going to be that it's just going to close distances. We're going to be able to hang out as if we were face-to-face and we're going to be able to float around and do stuff that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. So I think this, this discussion about reproduction and representation may be smoothly takes us to the the next question, which is quite a key question about the nature of the virtual, and especially when it comes to the value of the virtual, or if we want to get a bit more philosophical, the moral significance, the moral weight of the virtual. And there's this classic problem that you discuss in uh, uh, several of your papers, uh, which is called the gamer's dilemma. And the gamer's dilemma, maybe to summarize, has to do with sort of trying to understand and pin down how we really think of these kind of virtual acts and their significance. So on the one hand, no one bats an eyelid when it comes to violence in, vi- in video games, you know, virtual violence. So it's something that's almost built into the, to the genre of video games from the very start, as it were. Loads of them have very, you know, graphic violence and a lot of shooting people and, and, and everyone, you know, or at least the gamer community thinks that's just innocent fun because no one really is being hurt here, right? This is just make-believe violence. So virtual violence is not really violence and therefore no one should morally object to it. Uh, And and that's, that's the kind of argument usually that we hear. But then when it comes to some other acts like virtual child molestation or maybe a a grey area that I've heard is recently in the literature, this kind of virtual sexual harassment, you know, a lot of gamers are are more uncomfortable with that. You know, even if, again, no one's being actually harmed, no child is being molested, no one's actually being sexually harassed in the real world. These are virtual acts. And yet 
we don't seem to be quite as comfortable with with those acts and and so the problem arises that there's this this kind of inconsistency that that we seem to have these kind of contradictory commitments on the one hand some virtual acts are treated as you know morally neutral they don't have any they don't carry any any kind of moral significance whereas others seem to carry quite a lot and we want to sort of ban them and you know from from what i know that that is the case with most games you know you can't you can't have games that include certain acts of that of that sort so what does this dilemma teach us about the nature of the virtual the nature of the of virtual acts and is there a way of resolving it is there a way of unpacking it in such a way to, as to make those seemingly contradictory intuitions compatible. Yeah, so this gamer's dilemma is this, in a way, it's interesting. So th- th- uh, this is this dilemma that's coined by Morgan Luck. And um, and I also should have noted uh, earlier that with this the representation reproduction distinction, I describe it, I use it in a different way. Uh, but Philip Bray also has kind of a variant, which is a bit different than mine. But nevertheless, you know, he's got this sort of idea there. Um, but um, what's really nice about the gamer's dilemma is that it gives you one point that you can start thinking there and then you can move into all of these other really important debates about the virtual. The first thing I want to say is that there's some ambiguities. You can get confused in the dilemma because one question is, is it saying that virtual murder and virtual child molestation are not on par or our intuition is that they're not on par, but it looks like they are on par since nobody is harmed in both cases. One possibility is that the dilemma is supposed to be applied to gaming contexts. So in a game, is it okay to use tokens like uh, molestation or is it okay to use tokens like murder? And that would be one sort of dilemma. And this dilemma is really about focused on games, not so much focused on the virtual. But there's a different dilemma, which would, you know, where you kind of de-emphasize, it's not about it, the virtual murder or the virtual molestation occurring in a game. It's just about it occurring virtually. And now, once you start thinking of it this way, uh, you can see that there's actually also two dilemmas that can be uh, pulled apart when you distinguish between virtually representing certain things and virtually reproducing certain things to some extent or other. So now take the case where you have a perfect virtual reproduction of virtual murder. Well, a virtual reproduction of virtual murder would be murder. And so we think it's wrong. So then the dilemma collapses. We're not, the dilemma is not talking about virtual reproductions of these acts. It's talking about something that falls short of that. Either they're partial reproductions or they're merely representations of these acts. So what would a reproduction of virtual murder be in, in, in a virtual reality setting? Uh, it's uh, some series of virtual acts that you can perform that would conclude in the death of a person. But they would they would conclude in in the death of a of a virtual person, presumably, right? Not not a real person. Yes, but it would have to be maybe permanent in some way. Okay, so I, if I kill the avatar of of another person in a virtual space and they can't come back, as it were, that's it for their avatar. Yeah, then you've eliminated them from that world. So you might think that, right. you know, that, you know, assuming that that world is valuable and maybe that they needed to be in that world. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine that the metaverse becomes the most important place that you can, you know, if you're not in the metaverse, you're, you're nobody, you know. Now I, I virtually murder you in the metaverse in this permanent way. I've taken away your life in, in an important sense, even though mm-hmm. it is just your virtual life. And what would a virtual representation 
of a murder be in in uh, in the same in the same setting? Yeah, so then there I just represent murdering you in that world, even though you're not murdered either in the real world or in that world. So say in video games, in these first-person shooters, people kill each other all the time, but then they respawn and then they go on. So you might think that these are virtual representations of murder. They're not actual uh, virtual murders. The idea is this, you know, that, you know, you can virtually... You know, um, you might virtually reproduce the impact, the psychological impact of a murder on uh, a person, you know, or an attempted murder. If I make you feel the same amount of fear that you would feel if you were being chased around and you were really about to get murdered, but I do so virtually, then I virtually reproduced the impact of murder, but I've reproduced it by doing something virtually. So uh, here's why I wanted to draw this distinction, because movies have representations of murder and they have representations of molestation and books do as well. And so if you think about the dilemma as applying to virtual representations of murder and molestation, then in a way, the dilemma is just a new version of an old problem which is, you know, is it okay to watch movies that, you know, contain, you know, representations of murder or representations of molestation? And so there isn't something particularly new about the dilemma. But by contrast, if you think that it's about reproducing certain features of those acts, then these reproduct well, I mean, for one thing, you are reproducing one thing, you're reproducing their interactivity. Since virtual murder and molestation are actions, then they require agency. And in a video game, you do have that agency. In a movie, you don't. So already when I decide to kill somebody by pressing a button, I'm doing more than just you know passively sitting back and watching that murder unfold. I'm to a certain extent reproducing the act of murder by performing an act that that's like it. So I, I don't call these, I, you know, these partial reproductions of acts. I call them simulations. So you've simulated murder and a simulation of murder and a representation of murder, even though they're both virtual, they're not both on par. Think about, you know, with a child molestation or, you know, um, sexual harassment. If... If the designer uh, takes the visual appearance of a child and reproduces it exactly virtually, then your virtual molestation of the virtual child now shares some properties with a real molestation, namely that it involves the real appearance of a ch- or you know a very realistic appearance of a child. Uh, we're assuming here that that uh, matters for a, a molestation. Uh, by contrast, if I only virtually represent it, uh, then maybe that's like three, four pixels on the screen and I click X and it says, you know, oh, you know, you've, you know, something happens, you know, in the game, which indicates that you have performed a molestation, but still you haven't reproduced a molestation. You've just represented it. Although it is interactive, and so there's a uh, reproduction element in it. Yeah, I was going to say, like, in in video games, murder, I mean, given that video games can be very realistic now, when, when you're shooting someone... I've, I've, I feel like the line between representation and reproduction is quite blurry. It's not, it's not necessarily very clear cut where reproduction starts and where representation ends, because 
I mean, in, in you know, in many games, you can actually be, you know, be holding something like a gun, even in your, even in the physical space, right? Let alone in the virtual one, you're pulling a trigger, you know, someone, someone gets shot and their blood kind of splutters around. But we still, or at least gamers still seem like to think that that's, that's okay, right? So even if that's got elements of reproduction, that that's, that's still fine. But the moment where we think of an equally realistic, you know, act of sexual harassment, even in the context of a game, again, we're less, we're less comfortable with that. So I guess even within the representation space, it doesn't seem like the dilemma completely gets dissolved. Is that right? Or have I missed something? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, do people, you know, uh, might think there's something more objectionable about you watching a movie that's about molestations, uh, child molestations, and uh, versus watching a movie that's about murders. They might think that, you know, engaging with that sort of activity is worse. I also want to say that you, you're right that, uh, you know, sometimes by virtually, you know, a virtual reproduction of a calculator also represents a calculator. So sometimes a reproduction can also do the representational work, but it doesn't represent just by representing, it represents by doing something even more, by reproducing features of the original. It's kind of difficult to now talk about it with as much confidence because I feel like I'm starting to change my mind after starting to think about virtually representing versus, versus virtually reproducing these acts. But my position on the gamer's dilemma is that I neither agree that all virtual murders are okay, nor do I think that all virtual molestations are not okay. I think some instances of virtual molestation are permissible, and some instances of virtual murder are impermissible. And I think that's partly determined on the type of game. But let me just give you an example. Some games try to tell a narrative. And I think that there you determine the value of the virtual murder and the virtual molestation by what narrative they fall into. So if this game is glorifying war and glorifying the murder of innocents, as some existing games seem to do, then I don't think that's permissible. I think that we allow it legally in society and we're not super aware of what we're doing, but I think there's something genuinely morally objectionable about performing these sorts of virtual murders. And, uh, you know, agreeing to play a game which has an objectionable point of view and where the virtual murder is supposed to fetishize the idea of killing another person or glorify it, you know, we should hesitate about it. At the same time, think about there's, you know, in the horror genre, which I like, there's some, you know, horror games are about the character who has murdered his wife, but is in a state of self-deception and doesn't recognize this. And now all of these nightmarish things happen to him. And as you play as him, you discover the horrible truth. And this can be moving and you know, the game might not endorse that objectionable point of view. It might not endorse that you should kill your wife. It might actually be trying to show you the horrors of it. So now imagine a game that's like that, where you play as a child molester, you go around, you're forced as the player to, you know, get your avatar to perform these acts. But throughout it all, this is all the narrative is about how the character performs these acts, is tormented, and then later on you find out that they themselves were molested. And so now the general narrative of the game is telling you 
there's something, you know, objectionable. It's trying to get you to sympathize with and, you know, be kind of uh, horrified by the sorts of things that are happening. I think it's not that big of a problem to play that game. So some virtual molestations seem to me okay, and some virtual murders don't seem to me okay. So the position is both uh, conservative and radical, I guess, at the same time. Right, right. Rami, I mean, when when talking about these, these are obviously very extreme cases that we're talking of, of human behavior. But if we think about what the internet is like today, and we think about social media like Facebook, like Twitter, and the kind of quite horrible, often human behavior that is exhibited there, and I guess... Again, maybe the lines there between representation and reproduction seem maybe a bit blurred, but it's often more towards the reproduction, right? When you send someone a kind of virtual death threat on Twitter, I guess it's more or less reproducing what a you know a kind of real life death threat would be if I you know posted a letter through your letterbox. And yet we see that those acts are taken less seriously legally. Um, You know, the police is less interested maybe in those things than if someone really did post a death threat through my through my letterbox. Where is this going to go when we enter the metaverse? You know, this seems like a recipe for disaster in some ways. You know, we we talk about all these kind of possibilities of having these more interesting experiences and, and having these immersive experiences that we couldn't otherwise have and for people that wouldn't be able to have them because of various limitations, maybe to do with their body, maybe to do with their geographical location, their economic situation, whatever whatever it is. But at the moment, it seems like we're opening this door to a world where if you think Twitter is bad now, imagine that, you know, surrounding you and, and kind of feeling the threats uh, of people trolling you or whatever online in this very kind of present way. I mean, it sounds like this has to be regulated intensely, but at the same time, seems like we have very little evidence that it is going to be regulated because, you know, the internet has been around now for so long and hasn't been regulated in the same way that the physical world is. Sorry, I'm going I'm getting <laughs> I'm rambling on a bit, but do you see the kind of the kind of worries and what is your reaction to that? Do you think that's exaggerated or do you think there are ways that we can safeguard, you know, something like the metaverse from turning into a kind of wild west? Uh, no, I think these are very serious issues and I in a way, when, you know, early on, I said I was relieved that this information is being presented to the public because I think that we, we kind of need to push our policymakers to take this stuff more seriously. And I, I think naturally it's going to happen because once people start to get a sense of how much the sense of presence adds to these virtual experiences, it's not going to be as... You know, if something is popping up in your visual field every time somebody uh, sends you a threat, that's much more intrusive than it just showing up on your phone, even though it's very intrusive already on your phone and also anxiety inducing and so on. So we definitely need to be taking this regulation and policy making very seriously. And in a way, we really are walking into something like the Wild West. You know, it's just like we're here we are in the virtual world. Nobody knows, you know. What's okay? What's not okay? Um, Take this virtual reproduction representation. What do you do about partial reproductions? What if people start having virtual reproductions of molestations and nobody is, no kids are ever harmed in these acts? 
is that okay? Should people be allowed to do that? Do we, you know, do we feel fine with this? I remember walking into VR chat at some point and VR chat is this virtual world that's uh, very lively and very customized. And I just found these people, this group of friends or something. And what they were doing is they were running, we were on a skyscraper of some sort, and they would just run to the balcony and then just all of the mass jump from the balcony and so commit suicide, virtual suicide. But in that virtual world, you can see why they would do it because there's like the rush of falling really fast, you know? But are these okay? What what about if somebody, you know, a child, there are kids in VR chat and they're watching these people, they could now, you know, make inferences to the real world. We really need to be thinking about the policies that we have about the virtual world and also how these things relate to the real world. I think that when I was just talking about the gamer's dilemma, I think I take this to be one instance of that, that they don't, people don't take seriously that glorifying war repeatedly in video games is not making others think, oh, the other is a real human. It's, it's, uh, it's objectifying them, you know, the, there's the, the figure of the Nazi or the Arab or the terrorist. And now those are being shaped in these very realistic ways. And the idea that they're not going to have any impact on your psychological dispositions uh, th- doesn't seem to me uh, right at all. So I do think that these issues are serious and that we're going to, there's some of the solutions have to do with policy and regulation, but some also have to do with technology. One of the good things about the blockchain and these cryptocurrencies is partly that they remove these central authority figures, but also, you know, we're a long way from reaching anywhere that's safe. I also think, you know, I mean, unfortunately, I think this, but I think that the idea that the internet is anonymous or that the metaverse, that you can be anonymous in the metaverse, it, it can't stay. Uh, it has to be that your link to your real person, there might be anonymous spaces, but it, the, the whole thing can't be anonymous because then it's going to be very difficult to, to track police. down who's responsible for mm-hmm. what. Yeah, to police, yeah. So, I mean, this is a new area. This is, uh, you know, you've been writing on this, other philosophers have been writing on this. What is something that you recommend, whether it's a book or, or a video that would enlighten listeners uh, and help them better understand what virtual reality is and what are some of the philosophical problems that it throws up. I had the fortune of taking a look at uh, David Chalmers's new book, uh, Reality Plus, which should be coming out sometime soonish. And I thought that was a very nice overview of a lot of the problems. And, and it's, a, it's, it's readable. It's not like for a super technical audience. Uh, at least not all of its parts are. And so I, I recommend that book. It's called Reality Plus. There's a lot of interesting... You know, I mean, I recommend, you know, uh, for people to like take a look at these, you know, dilemmas like the gamer's dilemma, because even though it's simple, it kind of gets to a lot of, you can get to a lot of things through it. But also trying out virtual, you know, trying out virtual reality and virtual reality experiences, because you can get a sense of why you might still be excited even though you know that a lot of other work has to be done. So maybe for that, you know, looking at virtual reality version of Google Earth is, you know, it gives you like a feeling of awe because we've never borne that relationship to the Earth. So 
it's you you kind of get something girl or like uh yeah from it from that experience another one that i can think of as a, a virtual reality experience that's really worth it is to try out the museum of other realities it's a museum that hosts these virtual exhibits but what's nice about it is that you can see how much variability there is in the virtual world and how many really beautiful things can emerge out of it because that that's ultimately what we want right we're building these technologies but it's also because of the way our lives are where we're very disconnected from each other we're traveling all the time and so on and people want to be able to be present with one another and virtual reality gives us that rami ali thank you very much uh, thank you alexis as uh, really fun uh, talking about this and i hope it was informative Thank you for listening to this episode of The Philosopher in the News. A special thanks to Olive Richardson for help with the editing. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, I have a favour to ask you. Click on the Apple Podcasts link in the show notes and leave us a rating and a review. I always enjoy hearing feedback from listeners, but it's also the main way that others can find the podcast. I'm Alexis Papazoglu. And this was The Philosopher and the News. Speak again soon.